that look fun? Yes, to some of you. If you're scared, you should probably go do it. Uh, transformation trips, uh, I think it's going to be an amazing thing. Next summer, so if you're interested in that, please fill that out on, uh, on your Connect card, or you can go to the welcome uh, desk and just let them know, hey, I'm really interested in doing that. First of all, let me just say, where's Hannah? Uh, thank you. We, I, we did not, we don't expect anything. So we, it is an honor of a lifetime to actually pastor at Discover Church. Um, and I just want to say thank you. All the things you said about me are very kind, um, but I do have my bad days as well, okay? But thank you guys for, thanks for letting us pastor. We love, love this community. And, uh, and I said it before, and I do mean it. Even if we weren't pastoring, this would be the kind of church that we would want to come to and we'd want to bring our friends to because we, we just love the people here. So thanks so much. Uh, we're, we're doing this Just Your Average Joe series. The, the whole idea behind this series is that the majority of your life is not epic, okay? The majority of your life is average. It's okay. So you'll have your epic moments. You'll have your raises at work. You'll have your vacations to Disneyland. You'll have whatever. But majority of your life is not epic. It's average. And you live the majority of your life. Does that make sense? So how do we actually talk about it's okay to be average. It's okay to live consistently faithful as an average Joe, or what we're saying is, or Josephine. Okay, just, it just kind of flows because, you know, average Joe is the saying, but we honor and respect all the women. So average Josephine. You are, it is okay to be average in this way. And, and the whole gist behind this teaching series is if we don't despise the season that we're in, we can actually bear a lot of fruit in this season. So our tendency is to go, the grass is greener on the other side. I can't wait till this certain thing happens. But what if God of the seasons, God himself, is the one that's ordaining what is happening in your life right now? Or he's overseeing it, okay? And he has much to say about what's going on. So you're average. Majority of your life is average. It's okay. And that's what we're talking about. We, uh, this, it was uh, yesterday, uh, my oldest daughter Piper has this Bible activity book, okay? So it's like you fill in, what's special about you? It's kind of like, it's kind of focused on herself, but it's okay. We want her to feel good about herself. But she's five, okay? So there's this, there's this page that it has the bricks, like the walls of Jericho, and it says, tells her the story, and it says, what gets between you and God? What often gets between you and God? Why don't you fill in the bricks with what gets between you and God? So gets between your relationship. So she said, what's a relationship? So I said, it's when you're friends, and, and, and it's when you love one another. And so we said, what? And you're like trying to explain this. You go, what gets between your relationship with God? And she goes, nothing. <laughs> she goes, it's great. I love God, <laughs> you know? And you're like, oh, okay. Well, we're not going to force you to say there's something between you. Sin, you know, you want us to tell a five-year-old, sin gives, we didn't do that. So we said, oh, it's great. And then in the next few seconds, Brennan, our three-year-old, she's playing with this dollhouse, and she's like screaming to get our attention. She goes, my, my dolls won't stand up straight. She keeps trying to put them, and they're falling down, you know? She's like, is there not they're not, so one is like, oh, my relationship with God, and the other one is like, my dolls don't stand up straight. And I'm laughing, because I'm going, I, if I had to pick what my relationship with God often feels like, it's not, it's not the, the one where there's no wall between us, it's the one where I don't stand up straight. It's like where I keep falling over, and it just feels like the mundane life of average. And, you know, sw Switchfoot, go throwback, you know, Switchfoot said, we're all kind of like crooked souls trying to stand up straight. 
which I think is really profound. I relate not to no wall between us, but to the guy or gal that's like, I, I don't know, it's another day. All I'm trying to do is just stand up and make it through another day. I relate to that person. And so that, that's what this series is aimed at, is that person. So I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to jump into a Joseph in the Bible. We're learning, we're learning lessons from different Josephs in the Bible. If there was a Josephine, then we would learn. Oh, you, you, you get it. Okay, let's pray. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. Would you, um, would you be so kind as to honor the time we're setting aside to learn from you? Would you speak to us? And Father, if there are those of us who are far from you and have made no effort to be close to you, we thank you that it's not by our effort, but by yours. You just show us how good of a father you are. And those of us who are striving and striving day in and day out to just connect with you, help us to rest and be calm and thank Jesus it's because of you and not us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This week... Um, I was in Seattle Monday through Wednesday at a university called Northwest University. And sometimes I travel to universities to talk about church planting and to tell students, go get a degree and join a team. And so I was, there's this thing we do with, if you remember being in college, maybe you are in college, where we just say, hey, for, the, for two hours in the morning, we're going to buy all your drinks, whatever you want, whatever coffee you want. So you can imagine the line is long, 9 a.m., I th I'm not kidding, the ticket was over like $570. Just, it's just students, students, students were just talking to them about, about church planning, whatever, about their lives. And there's this line, and they're all saying, thank you, thank you, thank you. And they're getting Red Bulls and coffee, and Red Bulls mixed with coffee because they had systematic theology that was their next class, right? You understand what I'm saying. So, uh, there, but there's this one girl that really stood out to us. I was standing with Alberto. He was the, um, the speaker in chapel. Uh, the night before, and this girl came up to us, and she said, I just want to thank you. I want to thank you for being on campus. I'm going, you're welcome. We're not, I mean, we're just buying your coffee, and she goes, no, no, I, I just, it's so important that we talk about starting churches, and you can tell she's sharp. Like, it may be early in the morning for her, but she's like, she's in it. She's looking at you in the eye and very attentive. And you can tell there's just something deeper. You know, there's a story behind the story, so She's obviously not in a hurry, so we said, uh, why don't you tell us, tell us about um, your life? So we sit down, we have our coffee, and I said, tell me, tell me about your life. I mean, if you're not in a hurry. And she said, yeah, I, I'm from the Middle East. I said, okay. And she said, my dad is a pastor in the Middle East. He was Muslim, and he came to know Jesus through uh, dreams and visions and a radical conversion in 1991. I said, oh, wow. I said, when were you born? She goes, 1997. I said, so you've always known uh, the Lord? And she said, yeah, but we've been on the run because we, uh, my dad plants underground churches um, in heavily persecuted areas in the Middle East, in Afghanistan and other areas. And I'm, at this moment, I go, I'm not, you're not gonna learn anything from me. I'm not, I don't have anything to tell you about church planting, but you have everything to tell me. And I told her that. I said, I, honestly, me and Alberto have nothing. Can you just teach us? What, did, what is it like? So she's saying that her dad has multiplied underground churches, churches of 15 to 20 people meeting in basements all over in the Middle East, and I am blown away. I said, what made you come here? And she said, well, I came to Northwest because I wanted to get my business degree because I want to start um, schools 
to educate Middle Eastern women, Afghan women, because they're not educated. They're not allowed to seek education. She said, my mom has already done this with a few schools and I wanted to continue to do this. And I'm going, gosh, how do I get you to speak at our church? You know, how do I get you to fly to Denver? And so I asked her this question. Now, now the question I asked her, I was prepared. I was actually prepared for a shot to the heart. I knew this was gonna hurt, the answer was. I said, what is the biggest difference you see when you are in a church in America, in Seattle, she's not been anywhere other than Seattle in America, in Seattle, between a church in Seattle and the underground church in the Middle East. So you don't ask a question like that if you want them to be like, nothing, you know, like, or I don't know, you guys have li lights and fog and it's so nice, you have coffee, you know, that's not gonna be the answer. And um, she's like, tell me, she's going, no, it, it's fine. I love the churches out here. You know, she's so honoring. I go, I know, I know, what, whatever. But like, just tell me what is, and she said to me in Alberto, she said, honestly, I go to churches in America and I look for the poor and I don't see the poor. I look for the prostitute and the drug dealer. I don't see them. I don't know where the people in need are in America. But they're not in the churches. And I'm telling you, I thought it was gonna be like a dagger. It like, my heart sunk and has not surfaced since that talk. I oftentimes worry about that, but the main thing that drives some American churches is bigger is better, right? How do we do better this Sunday than we did last Sunday? And uh, this week I just didn't worry about that. That wasn't a priority for me. My prayer consisted of, how do we take care of the broken more? How do we do that? How do we see the people in need receiving Jesus? And by the way, we are all in need. And it lined up perfectly with what we're talking about today. Because the, the average income in Denver is just above $61,000, the average income per person in Denver. Okay, which means if that's true, that the average Joe in Denver is in within the top one to two percent of the richest people in the world, okay? And what's interesting whenever you study this is you would, you would say, now I'm not saying everyone here makes that, what I'm saying is the average, but what, you, what you'll find is, is you'll find if that's true, and we are not necessarily the most in need, then we're asking ourselves, like, what is it, how do you articulate the need for the gospel to people who think that they have everything? To affluent communities. So we talk about just your average Joe. Here's gonna be the direction we're going tonight is, I feel like your average Joe, can you throw that next slide up? I feel like your average Joe because I have everything I need. But the, the, just the mere fact that you, you may have a job, I'm not speaking to everyone, I'm talking about the average person in Denver but this will apply to everyone, whether or not you would say your financial status is that or not. So to the average person who says, I may have a job, I have a bed to lay in and a roof over my head, you are now more fortunate than the vast majority of the world. There's a book called Children in Crisis, it's a volume of books, and it talks about that the stats are staggering, that the people who realize that they have a crisis in their life are much more likely to be devoted to Jesus than the people who don't realize they have a crisis in their life. Isn't that fascinating? So it's actually showing us that whenever people have what they need, 
they don't know what they truly need. Like, they don't know, is it Jesus that I need? How do I, how do I know that I need Jesus? Because people who are aware of crisis typically, if they're a Jesus follower, will be way more dedicated to Jesus than people who are not aware of crisis. I'm not talking about just personal crisis, just the crisis that exists in the world. Okay, just that crisis in and of itself. So you'll have the people, I mean, just think about it. Think about the Middle Eastern family who's aware of the crisis that they're being persecuted and they're in an underground church and at any moment, people could rush in to the doors, can slaughter them, kill them, burn their house. They're aware of crisis. Their devotion to God, I know it doesn't make sense, right? You would think their devotion to God would be, no, their devotion is actually higher than the person who may worship more freely may not be aware of crisis. But it's not just that situation. You can talk about the drug dealer, the person who's on drugs or is caught in that circle of influence. This person, aware of crisis, has a more likely chance, once they start following Jesus, to follow Jesus fully, fully committed to Jesus. You can talk about the person on death row or the person who's about to commit suicide or the person who doesn't have food. I mean, you can talk about this all around. And in fact, there's a point in the Old Testament where God actually says to the Israelites, if I give you what you need or what you're asking for, I'm afraid that you're going to turn away from me because provision tends to make us drift from God. It doesn't tend to bring our eyes to him. We tend to think every, everything's fine. We're not aware of crisis in our life or around us. And I, I just want you to know when we say some of us say we feel average. Maybe, just maybe, it's because we've gotten complacent with our lives. Everything's fine. There's no risk that we're taking. There's nothing happening. We're kind of in this routine. And we might actually feel average because we have everything that we need. And we're not aware of crisis going on in the world or around us. When I was in undergraduate uh, school, I remember my counseling class, they said that the Chinese symbol for crisis is made up of two brush strokes. I don't, actually don't know if it's this one and this one, but that was me illustrating to you. It's made up of two brush strokes. One of them is danger, a brush stroke that means danger, and the other one means opportunity. And when you combine those two strokes together, that's the Chinese symbol for crisis, okay? Because when you're in crisis, there's great danger that's around you, but there's also great opportunity for God. This entire way of living of how do I become aware that there is crisis and aware that there's opportunity for God will actually jostle you out of feeling average, feeling complacent, and feeling discontent with life. This is the story of Joseph of Arimathea that Joseph will learn from today. Joseph of Arimathea, if you've never heard that name before, it's okay. He only has a few verses dedicated to him. Um, what, what we're going to read out of the Gospel of John, what's fascinating is every single Gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, refers to Joseph of Arimathea. That's actually really unique that every Gospel writer would agree to talk about one thing. But they, but they talk in different facets about this man. So we're going to read out of John, but I'm going to walk you through, as we're reading these short um, verses, I'm going to walk you through actually what it meant for this man to do what he did, and if we're going to learn lessons from the average Joe, what that means for us. When I study this, I'm convinced if I do what is said in the scriptures, my life won't feel average. I'll actually always be aware that there's more to be done. The, the, the complacent 
discontent, average feeling might actually start to go away. And I'll be the first to admit, I've listened to more sermons than I've obeyed, okay? I don't know if that's true with you. Maybe you've obeyed every single one. Congratulations. But to the rest of us, to the rest of us, I would ask you, let's try to step into obedience into what Joseph of Arimathea teaches us. So let's read in John, John chapter 19. After these things, this is after the crucifixion of Jesus, after these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, let me pause right there, Arimathea, is, he, he's wealthy. So what we know of him is actually he was probably a metal collector. He, he probably was into trading. He was a very wealthy man. And another gospel tells us he was on the, council, on the uh, part of the Sanhedrin. 70, um, 70 religious people made up of scribes, Sadducees and Pharisees, 70 religious people who actually were the council for the Jewish people in that region. So he's prestigious. He has money. Uh, after these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly. I want you to see how interesting that is. Secretly. This man's a secret disciple. Okay? So I don't know if you're a secret disciple, but if you're like, I do have a hard time talking about how I follow Jesus. Okay, well, this is probably a good story for you. Uh, secretly for fear of the Jews. I don't want to keep stopping, but I'm going to. <laughs> um, he's actually not fearful of the persecution that you would think he's fearful of. He's fearful of the Jews. He's fearful of the religious people. It's almost as if in the scriptures what we have is the people who live and following Jesus' lives, religion tends to get in the way of those people. And, uh, and so, but secretly, for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. So Jesus' body's on the cross. He goes to Pilate and says, I would, I would like to take this body. And Pilate gave him permission, so he came and took away his body. One of the other gospels when speaking of Joseph of Arimathea, says, Joseph of Arimathea, a man seeking the kingdom of God, but secretly. So if you put all this together, another gospel tells us that Joseph of Arimathea took the body, not just to like go hide it like his life was, but to actually wrap it, to wrap it in linens and to, to wrap it in ointment and in fragrance that was very, very expensive. All the linens together would cost, or would, would weigh between 75 to 100 pounds. Wrap it, which by the way, you know who helped wrap him, wrap Jesus, was uh, Nicodemus. Remember Nicodemus? Nicodemus in the Bible who had a radical life transformation in, in following Jesus, that they're taking care of the body of Christ. And Joseph of Arimathea puts this body in his tomb, in Joseph's tomb. So let me explain to you to you, maybe, maybe to you, you're like, what does it mean But you dig six feet in the ground and you drop a body in and you put it, what, what's, what's the big deal? In, in ancient Near Eastern culture, when you owned a tomb, he was probably an elderly person. When you owned a tomb, it's not like you own a hole in the ground, okay? It's not like you own a little lot. This is an above ground tomb and it's dedicated to your entire family. It's dedicated. Your family was typically buried within the same tomb. It wasn't just in Jewish culture. This is in cultures all throughout. Even when I visited Petra, which is, if you've seen Indiana Jones, I can't remember which one, but Petra's in there. You know what I'm talking about? No, okay. But Petra's like this, this beautiful, beautiful, it looks like beautiful architecture and buildings. It's actually just a graveyard. But there was such regard for the dead that different people, now Bedouins, different people owned tombs above-ground tombs. So Joseph of Arimathea has set aside a tomb for him and his family. 
very expensive too, okay? And he, in the death of Jesus, through the death of Jesus, he realizes um, who's gonna take care of his body? Because what happened to the disciples who were public disciples, they actually ran and fled, they hid. And this private disciple goes public. It's like this weird irony in the story that this secret disciple who's been watching from afar, who's actually been living a life committed to religious practices and religion, but not liking all that. But he's in secret because he's in fear, right? He's in fear of like, what are other people going to think? What's my reputation? The death of Jesus catapults him out. It, it like, he just goes public with his faith and public with his resources. He just says, actually, I'm, I'm giving him my family's inheritance of the tomb. It's all, it's all going to be his. And he does it. Joseph of Arimathea is a real curious character. But here's what I find. The death of Jesus is the reason to be courageous with your requests and your resources. This is what it does for him, and I think it does for us. In fact, as you study church history, you'll find there's a lot of people that stood up for the less fortunate, who stood up for the victims of society, who stood up for injustice. They're standing up for justice based on the fact that the death of Jesus Christ radically changed their life. They actually realize there's equality with all mankind because Jesus has said to the, to the friend and to the enemy, I love you enough to die for you. And the death of Jesus catapults them out. It's like they become courageous all of a sudden, right? Now to the disciples who are following him, who thought he was going to fulfill their own agenda, they go and hide until the resurrected Christ finds them and speaks to them. To the disciple who's watching secretly, lives kind of an average life, has influence, is what the death of Jesus is the reason that he becomes courageous with his requests and his resources. Now, here's what's interesting about Joseph of Arimathea, okay? We don't know what happened after this to this man, but there are stories. I can't say that all these stories are true. There's lots of stories that surround his life but there are extra biblical texts. Now, what I mean by that is historical texts outside of the Bible that are speaking about historical events. There are extra biblical texts that say that he started the first church building, that he funded it and started it, and that he was very much what we would call today a church planter, that he was funding missionaries, is what some say. What we do know is that the Catholic Church actually calls him a saint. Some Protestant churches do as well. So, what we could say about the history surrounding him is whatever happened to his life, it doesn't seem like he went back in hiding. It seems like he was all in, like he's all in with, with his life. From this point forward, the courage didn't wane down. It like increased, increased. So let's, let's just talk about this. Let's talk about, can you go to the slide where we just say, the death of Jesus is your reason to be courageous with your request and your resources. If you are here, and you go, I, I feel kind of complacent and stuck in average. I actually feel like my life is just, I, I know what's coming in and I know what's going out. I just feel average. I feel like I have everything I need. I don't know. I don't know. I just feel stuck. Can I just, the death of Jesus is your reason to be courageous with your requests and your resources. The death of Jesus does this to us. It gets you out of average mode, okay, with the requests. Let's talk about the request for a second. The request that he made to go to Pilate, he's now coming forth and saying, 
the one that you killed, I want you to understand this, the one that you killed, I follow, okay? I follow him. I want his body. So whatever the plan to do with Jesus' body was before probably was not honorable. There probably wasn't honor, because Jesus died the death of a criminal. He didn't die the death of some honorable martyr that Pilate wanted to elevate. He died the death of a thief, right? So what do you do with the body of a death of a thief? Probably nothing. You probably just get rid of it. Pile it up. And he says, I want the body. He's making a request. What that would have done in the Sanhedrin to, to his religious brothers would have, he immediately would have had a target on his back. Y- you're telling me that we just voted. We just said crucify him. We just said crucify We just yelled crucify him. One of the gospel accounts tells us he did not participate in that action. Isn't that interesting? And in the death of Jesus, surrounded by people who don't follow him, who want to crucify him, who want nothing to do with him, he says, I want the body. I want the body. He outs himself. He puts it all on the line. It's not hard to draw the correlation between the world we live in now, that when you talk about Jesus, there are so many different perspectives. But when you talk about the biblical Jesus, you talk about the Jesus who says, actually, there is nothing you can do to become a good person in and of yourself. It is only by the grace of God. When you talk about the Jesus who defends the brokenhearted and the outcast, and you talk about the Jesus who said, blessed are the peacemakers, okay? Blessed are those who make, blessed are the weak, the meek in spirit. Blessed are those people. And you talk about that Jesus, it's easy to know what the world would say. Crucify him. We could do it again, we do it again. Crucify him. That's not the way the world runs, right? And if you're a secret disciple, living in your job or your neighborhood, or or even a family, I mean, goodness, so many of you have families that don't know God. Family that you say, it is so hard to make any sort of request to be bold. And I'm telling you, the death of Jesus should help you. The death of Jesus will help you. To the, the man or woman who's married and actually is not married to a Christian spouse, even the request to say, can we pray before bed? Can we pray before our meal? That's hard. You don't think that's hard? That's hard because the person that you're married to isn't a Jesus follower. And you go, I think they would yell, crucify him. Yeah, yeah, but, but do you know what Jesus did for both of you? Could you put that request up? Maybe for some people, the request in your neighborhood, okay, the request to make known that, hey, we actually want to take care of the kids in our neighborhood, want to take care of the schools in our neighborhood, and, uh, and we want to do something different. That request is hard. The request in your job to put forward a mission that may be different than what people have talked about. That request, I remember when, uh, when I was in middle school, there wasn't a Bible study and I wanted to start a Bible study in middle school. And, and you may think it's easier in middle school. It is not easier in middle school, okay? Middle school is like, they are ruthless. I think it's like the worst years of my life. Um, and I, I remember going up to the school counselor and saying, I want to start a Bible study. And then saying, well, you're going to need to find a teacher or faculty that's going to sponsor your Bible study. And I did. I found this, like, uh, I forget her name, but she was over the cooking class, culinary class. And we started a Bible study. When, when Lisa and I were, I think we had just gotten married. We were going walking through an arts and crafts fair 
at Eisenhower Middle School and I see a sign for a Bible study, it's the same Bible study. It's in the same class years later. And I remember in middle school being so scared to put forward anything, any sort of request. But I'm telling you, the people who change the world put forward requests of change and then they have action to back it up. But the reason they do that is because the death of Jesus, that Jesus made a declaration to all the principalities, um, all the evil, and he said, these people are mine. He made this declaration and so people can now say, I'm, I put this forward. Um, we, Hannah leads a mission and justice meetup that meets on Wednesdays, right? Meets on Wednesdays and they talk about mission and they talk about the justice of God in the city. I want to tell you, I've been going through this book called Just Mercy. If you haven't read it, it deals with the mass incarceration um, dilemma that's uh, going on in America. And it's written by a guy, uh, a lawyer named Brian Stevenson. Brian Stevenson could be a lawyer for, for just any firm, essentially, right? Brian Stevenson is brilliant. And what he has done in the last 27 years, he, his practice is out of Alabama, and what he's done in the last 27 years is he has actually freed over 150 innocent African-American males. And he has represented them well. And he's listened to them on death row, and he's made request after request after request in courtrooms. I mean, can you imagine what, what his entire community is thinking of him? Now, this is not the kind of guy that's making a ton of money based on what he's doing. This is the type of guy who says, I, my life, the, the death of, by the way, this is a Jesus follower. The death of Jesus has catapulted him to make requests in courtrooms that are unthinkable requests, but are saving people's lives. This is what he says in his book. Proximity has taught me some basic and hum humbling truths, including this vital lesson. Now, I want you to listen to the type of vocabulary he uses, the type of request that he makes. Each of us is more than the worst thing we've ever done. Each of us is more than the worst thing we've ever done. My work with the poor and the incarcerated has persuaded me that the opposite of poverty is not wealth. The opposite of poverty is justice. Finally, I've come to believe that the true measure of our commitment to justice, the character of our society, our commitment to the rule of law, fairness, and equality cannot be measured by how we treat the rich, the powerful, the privileged, and the respected among us. The true measure of our character is how we treat the poor, the disfavored, the accused, the incarcerated, and the condemned. The true measure is how we treat the way we request for them to be treated fairly. There's one example. I mean, I, you could go through the history of the abolitionists who are fighting against slavery. Doing so, why? Because their hearts were transformed by the gospel of Jesus. And they were saying, the death of Jesus, I can put my life on the line and make requests. I can do this. I can make requests. So my challenge to us as a church is in your sphere of influence, in your immediate, whatever it would be, your family, your work, your school, whatever it would be, have you ever dared to make a request that would further the mission of Jesus but create some resistance from maybe religious or irreligious people? Have you ever done that? Have you ever dared to do that? It doesn't mean you do it with feeling so brave. I mean, a moment of courage, actually, you probably have a pit in your stomach and you want to throw up, but you got to do it anyways. That's what courage does. It gets you to do it anyways. Have you ever made a request for the person that is not like you? Have you ever made that kind of request? Because Joseph of Arimathea, he seemed pretty average until this day. 
until this moment. And all the other disciples ran and fled, and he actually comes forward. The, what's interesting, you know, Jesus says this thing. He says, you are the salt and light of the world. Do you remember that? Maybe you, don't, maybe you didn't know that, and that sounds weird to you. But uh, he did. He said, you are the salt and the light of the world. The Latin word for salt is actually the root of where we get our current word for salary, okay? In the ancient Near Eastern time when Roman soldiers were paid, a lot of times they were paid with mounds of salt because that was a precious commodity. It was precious and what it could do. It could preserve, it could purify, it could do a whole lot of things, but they were paid with mounds of salt and then they would use that to trade. So what's, what's fascinating, really, if you go around, if you just let, let the thinking take you all the way back to yourself, you go, I think what turns the world around is money. Jesus thinks what turns the world around is his people. His people are more influential than the money they have. Right? You are the salt. Your influence, the leverage that you have, you are where you are at 100% on purpose. And, uh, and I just think too many times we, when we are living an average life, we think I'm here by accident. That's not true. You're where you're at on purpose. Is it possible that it's time for you to make a request to further the mission of God in some way? Right? This is what Joseph of Arimathea did, and he never looked back. He just kept going. So it shows us make a request, and then, and then the text makes a request of us. The text actually shows us the resources that he gave up. So requests and resources. Now here, here's what's interesting. When you talk about money, everyone, everyone gets like weirded out, okay? So if you're like, oh, okay, great, another sermon talking about money. I'm not actually just talking about money, but I just want to calm your heart a little bit. We, we got to talk about the fact that we are given resources and the bottom line, the bottom question that we come down to is this. Am I an owner of what I have or am I a steward? Okay? Your answer to that question will determine your impact when it comes to giving things away. So I'm going to ask that question again. Am I an owner of my resources or am I a steward of my resources? I mean, we could be, we could talk generosity in a lot of ways. Okay, let's talk generosity when it comes to um, spiritual generosity. Spiritual generosity, we're merciful. We don't judge too harshly. This is spiritual generosity. That's the generosity of your spirit. We don't condemn. That's the generosity of love. We forgive. That's the generosity of heart. This is, we could talk spiritual generosity and spiritual resources, giving those away, which some of you, that's hard for you. We could talk physical generosity. We talk about what it is that's in your bank account, the house that you live in. How do you use those things for the kingdom? How do you give those things away? How do you, how do you do that? Do you even think about those things? The death of Jesus, what it does is it makes us realize God gave his son. He actually, you know, he, he gave his son. For God so loved the world, he gave his son. So God gives. He gives. When there's a crisis, what does God do? Does he take or does he give? He gives, right? God gives. So this is what we find God doing. So the death of Jesus reminds us of this. And then whenever we look at what we, quote unquote, have, that we think we own, we go, when there's crisis in the world, we take. We take. We go into self-preservation mode. And the gospel says, when there's crisis in the, mode you give, in the world, you give. You give. When there are people without a place to rest their head, can you give? Can you give a warm meal? Can you give a pillow? Can you give a room in your house? Can you give? What can you give? 
What can you give? What can you do? Because the death of Jesus gave, and it should spark us to give. And so you have Joseph of Arimathea giving the safety of where his entire family is going to be buried. Now, you may look at it and go, yeah, but Jesus was just borrowing the tomb, you know? Like, he gave it back, I guess, essentially, in three days after. He, Joseph didn't know he's going to give it back. He had no idea that he's going to borrow it for three days. He gave with an expectation to not receive anything back. So, spiritually, we can give. Physically, we can give. Relationally, have you ever given the benefit of the doubt? Have you ever given hope over suspicion? Have you given, when it comes to your relationships with people, have you given them what it takes in order for them to improve and get better? I mean, this is what the death of Jesus has done for us, right? So relationally, we can talk that. We can talk holistically. It should just get you to think in a way that you say, if God would give himself away, who am I to hold on to? Anything. Anything. The death of Jesus is your reason to be courageous with your requests and your resources. We've talked about, uh, well, I'll tell you this. I know the number one topic nobody wants to talk about in church is probably money and tithing. And uh, what's interesting is I'm on this group called under 40, like under 40 pastors, okay, on Facebook, and they throw up all these weird questions, and it's like they're always talking about tithing, 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 and, and, and here, here's what I would say. When it comes to just being generous with our finances in a church, in a community setting of a church, what people will tend, they'll tend to go one of two ways. One way is they go, the Bible demands that it's 10%, just look at the Old Testament, okay? And then, or they'll go the way of going, the Bible doesn't demand it. Jesus just talks, he doesn't talk about tithing in that way and, and on and on. What's interesting is Jesus, when talking to the religious leaders, the Pharisees, he says, you tithe and this is good, but you forget the most important thing and that's justice. You don't pursue justice on behalf of people. So he's actually saying, you're doing a religious duty without the changed heart. Because what does the death of Jesus do? It doesn't get you to put money in a bucket. What it does is it gets you to become courageous all around, right? That you become courageous with justice, with your request, and you become courageous with your resources. And he's going, the two don't line up. And the reality is, when we talk about the average person in Denver, the average person makes way more than the saint of the Old Testament, right? And then you go into the New Testament, and you go, and what they did was they just made sure nobody's in need. 10% would have been a floor, not a ceiling for them. And, and the whole idea of giving things away, giving things away for the sake of God, is wrapped up in Scripture. So if you're here and you say, I get real skittish when you talk about that sort of principle, I'm just, what I'm trying to show you is the death of Jesus should make you courageous, not just in the easy parts of your life, but make you courageous when you have a pit in your stomach and you need to be brave in a moment. That's what the death of Jesus should do. You move forward. So for some of us, we need to be courageous in a request, right? We need to actually, we know, hey, there's a next step I need to take when it comes to my immediate influence. God has placed me where he's placed me for a reason. I need to be courageous. I may not be a lawyer, and I may not be able to save people out of death row, but you may not know that you could be that person, right? You may not know that the influence God has you the mouthpiece that he's given you is such that you can make requests when other people look at you as crazy and those requests will be honored 
because God's sovereign and you're furthering the mission of Jesus. Some of you, that's, that's the next thing. Others of you, you may say, actually, mine is mine. <laughs> I own it. I signed the paperwork. It's mine. You may share it with the bank for now, but it's going to be yours, right? And the death of Jesus show, shows us Joseph of Arimathea, he looked at the death of Jesus and said, what I thought was mine is now his. Even in his death, not for Jesus to live in, but for him just to have a place to rest his head in his death. Isn't that amazing? Absolutely incredible. The average life of feeling discontent is typically broken by the radical death of Jesus and then what it, what it does to you. If you become courageous, you probably won't look back. If you become courageous. If you choose not to be courageous time and time and time again, you'll, it'll just be another story. The gospel will sound just mundane to you. Take a step of courage. Okay. Uh, Lisa, if you'll, have, if you'll come up, we're going to go ahead and go into a time of prayer. But I want to tell you a story at my kids' expense again. For Halloween, our family is dressing up as Big Hero 6. Have you ever seen that movie? Baymax, big fluffy guy, becomes a superhero. And, uh, and then, yeah, I don't know if you've seen it. If you haven't, it's a Disney movie. When Piper saw this movie, there's a character named Honey Lemon, okay? I, I shouldn't know this except that it just plays over and over in the background of our house. Honey Lemon, Honey And my kids are like, I'm Honey Lemon. No, I'm Honey Lemon. And you're like, you're you. I don't know why you can't just both act like. So anyways, Piper for months has been wanting to be Honey Lemon. Okay, so we thought, are we going to build her an outfit? But then I remember when I was a kid, I, my parents... I'm not kidding. They gave me a pillow. I just talked to my mom about this. They gave me a pillowcase and cut the eyes out, and they said, like, go be a ghost, you know? Like, this was my Halloween, so I'm going, I can't do that. i got to buy them an outfit, you know? So it's just, I just have stuff to work out in my past. So we, we ordered her an outfit, but we also ordered uh, uh, Brennan an outfit to be Baymax. And then, I don't know, we'll make ours. We'll save money. So her outfit was going to arrive on October 16th. She's talking about it every day. If you ever look forward to something in the mail, you know what it's like. You're like looking forward to it. But if you're five, you don't have any self-control. So you're just all about like, like, is it here in the mail? Is it here, here in the mail? So this is when I was in Seattle. I actually knew, oh, it's October 16th. And so, so I'm thinking I'm going to get a picture of her in her honey lemon outfit. And so there's a box. It's right there at the front door. Lisa goes and opens the box. Piper's so excited. And it's her sister's Baymax outfit, Okay. And Brennan's like, yes! You know, Brennan's like so excited. Like, it's my out. And so she gets it on, and I get a picture of Brennan in her, in her Baymax outfit. And what I'm told is Piper's crying for 10 minutes. Like, no, just devastated. Why is it not here? Why is it not here? Well, reality is we had to reorder it, and the company ordered from, we reviewed them on Yelp. Okay, so like we'll never order from them again. And I'm, t I'm telling you all this just to tell you, like, they're, we, we actually don't think we have what we need quite yet. We think it's coming at some point in our life. At some point in my life, I'll be able to be the hero to request things and to use my resources. At some point in my life, I could do that. Whatever that day is. And I'm here to tell you, like, today's the day. There's no future date of when you become that person. You grow into being that person. It's one courageous decision after the other. This is actually how 
you become the person that you that people look at and say like it says in hebrews look at those who have lived faithfully and consider the outcome of their life and then imitate their faith i i live in a way that i go at, at some point, it's like going to come in the mail, you know, like I'm going to wake up one day and I'm going to be like, it's here. Or when I have more, when I have more, I can give more. That's not true. Actually, if you don't give when you have little, you probably won't give at all. But I'm going, if I, there's a day where it's coming and I'm, I'm going to be that person. And the reality is we look at the people around us and we go, look at them. They've got the Baymax outfits, right? Look at them. They, the day is like here. Look at them on social media. Look at them whenever, even though they're not supposed to brag, look at how much they're giving away. I'll look at all this stuff. And you're like, I'm just average. And I'm telling you right now, you're not. That the crucified Christ can make you courageous. That if you are waiting for that day, the day's now, the day's today, to take one courageous step. As you look at the death of Jesus, you go, I can do it. He gave everything, and he's God. I don't have to live in the facade that I have to keep things. I can, I can boldly say things in settings that make the mission of Jesus go further and I can boldly give things that make people fall in love with Jesus now, not later, you know? Joseph of Arimathea, I'd be curious to know how the rest of his life went, but what we know through so many different stories is that it probably didn't go backwards. He just kept becoming more and more courageous. Some people believe he died a martyr, which would I mean, I wouldn't be surprised. If you live courageous enough for Jesus day to day to day, then the day that your life may be asked of you, you could be in the Middle East leading an underground church, and it's not hard. You might not be there now, but you, you know, that girl's dad didn't immediately become that person. It was one courageous act after another in reflection of the sacrifice of Jesus. Can we stand together? So I want to go back and say, it, with this type of sermon, it's easier to hear than it is to obey. That's like typically how it goes with, with churches. But I want to tell you, I'm, I very much feel like most of you. I feel like the person standing up that keeps tipping over, that keeps going, oh, this is so hard. This is so, and I just want to calm all that and, and say, in your walk with Jesus, wherever you're at right now, wherever you're at, can you be courageous enough to take one more step today? One more step of commitment. Whatever that commitment would be with him, what, just don't look around and go, all the Baymaxes around me, like all that, look, they're like all modeling superheroes of who Jesus is and what it means to be Christian. No, 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 don't do that. Like the, one of the worst things that's happened to co culture is comparison. Don't look around, just look to Jesus. And, uh, and he may say, there's a relationship you need to make a request of forgiveness known. Just, you're going to need to voice that. And that's your step. You may say in your work, hey, there's some unethical things that have been happening in your work, and you're a voice of peace. You need to be that voice of peace. Don't let those things stand. He may say that to you. He may say, I want you to consider the less fortunate from now on. He may say, when it comes to your resources, the one thing that would be hardest for you is even to give anything away. Just start to release it. All these things. I don't know what he'll say to you. I just know this story makes me look back and say the death of Jesus gives me courage with my requests and my resources. So 
um, it's gonna be pretty simple tonight. We have a place where you can seek com- or where you can take communion. We can continue to worship, or you can seek prayer on any of these things that we talked about, revolving around I need the courage, or I feel I'm feeling courageous to do this next thing. And what I'd encourage you to do, whoever's praying with you, just tell them this is what it is. I'm gonna voice it out loud. And I want you to pray over me that I will take that next step. Okay, that's what we're gonna seek tonight. Jesus, uh, I believe that following you is one step at a time. It's not a sprint. And so God, just help us as a church to take one more step towards you. One more step towards a Jesus-looking God that we will follow you. So God, there are people here tonight, me included, that I know you're asking something pretty incredible of me to do. And and it's uh, you asking me and God with what feels like fear, I will, I will take a step in commitment and in obedience. So Lord, I pray, whether it's relationally, whether it's emotionally, whether it's physically, whether it's with our resources, whatever it is, I just ask that there would be courageous people filling this room. Holy Spirit, give us the gift of faith tonight. May we have faith to look at Jesus and follow Jesus more faithfully tonight. We're not waiting for another day whenever somehow our powers arrive. We're waiting um, no more. We're, we're here in this moment. We pray for that. So now you can take communion, you can worship, or you can seek prayer on the sides. But let's respond. When you walk into the room, everything changes. Darkness starts to tremble at the light that you bring. When you walk into the room, every heart starts burning. Nothing matters more than just to sit here at your feet and worship you. Worship you.
that all we are we give you permission our hearts are yours we want you we want you come and consume god all we are we give you permission our hearts are yours we want you we want you come and consume god all we Give you permission, our hearts are yours. We want you, we want you. We love you, and we'll never stop. We can't live without you, Jesus. Let's just wait a minute and see if the Lord would want to say anything to you personally. Um, I just talked to someone who's a journalist and they said they've written an article on evangelicals and their relationship to immigration and that's going forward to be published to publication tomorrow I want you to know that is the story of you are being courageous and bold making a request known to a world that doesn't follow Jesus to follow Jesus and we believe that God will do that I believe God will make us courageous so let's pray Father, for all the little children below us, may they lead the way on where it is to be courageous in their schools and with their families, in their character, in their lives. Father, bless them as they don't know how to compare. Keep them, keep them from fear of losing reputation. Keep them from that fear. And Father, I pray for the people here that we would say our reputation is in Jesus and him crucified. We have no means to boast in anything else but the cross. That is why we can risk it all. And so, Lord, would you take us out of feeling average and discontent and complacent and break us free as we look at how you sent your son to die and we could live day after day of being courageous and what we say, and what we request before people, and how we live with our resources, Lord. We pray for this. Now, Father, forgive us for not doing this before, and may Discover Church do this moving forward, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much for coming here. It is an honor and a privilege of a lifetime to be uh, pastoring this church. So uh, I'll be hanging out for a little bit. Lisa will, if you want to say hi, if we haven't met you or if we have met you. But go have a wonderful week and go be the church. Thanks for coming.